So the reason for the season. What is the reason for the season? <laughs> I mean, you, you may be certain that you have an answer to that question, uh, but, uh, I mean, obviously, Jesus, right? But apparently in our day and age, simply asserting that Jesus is the reason for the season does not end the discussion, not according to the internet anyway. Uh, so I typed the reason for the season into my Google image search uh, window, and what came back to me was quite an education. Uh, I mean, it seems that we Christians are not the only ones who make a robust claim on that phrase, the reason for the season. Now, of course, we can say with full authority that Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, but there's a virtual war going on out there between groups who also make this claim vigorously. Now, here's the good news. By sheer volume, Jesus is winning this battle. I know you feel more comfortable now knowing this. Fully 90% of the images that come up when you query the reason for the season come up on the side of Jesus. And not just that, we've got variety on our side. I mean, not only do we have the posters, we've got the shirts, we've got the buttons, we've got the throw pillows, and the coffee mugs. <laughs> And just to demonstrate our creative determination, we've got the tote bags and the neckties. <laughs> I, I want one. <laughs> now, predictably, the number one rival to the claim is Santa Claus. I mean, the, the Santa team, knowing a little bit about uh, marketing themselves, have valiantly tried to keep pace and so they have the buttons, they have the shirts, uh, notice there's our hoodies, I think because of that whole North Pole thing, but I'm happy to say that in the end that Santa has personally withdrawn his claim and bent his knee to the real reason for the season. But wait, the, the battle is far from over. Where does this entry come from? Well, I, I think maybe from the scientific community, uh, but their physics were a bit off when they made this claim. It was not Isaac Newton who discovered uh, gravity, and it's not the reason for the season. Um, I think they knew that. I, I, and so it looks like they've regrouped, and they came back with this. And then not to be, not to be labeled Scrooge-ish, they've rebranded with a more seasonal theme. And, uh, and they've also now branched out with t-shirts, with coffee mugs. And, and here's one that I don't think our Jesus team has thought of yet. <laughs> okay. But where does this one come from? Saturn is the original reason for the season? Ah, yes. This is the complaint of the paganists who say 
that the way we celebrate our Christian, Christian holiday sure looks a lot like what they've done all these centuries at this time of the year. Decorated trees, parties and feastings, the timing of their event, or of our event on December 25th, well, that matches up with the ancient Roman celebration of the god Saturn and their annual celebration, Saturnalia. So this is, this is probably where Christmas dinner came from. Meanwhile, theologically speaking, a real case can be made for this claim. <laughs> I mean, Ephesians 2 tells us that Christ preached peace to those who were far away from God. And from one view, pagans are the reason for the season. And if we look at things that way, a case can be made for this idea as well. <laughs> but here's the case I want to make this morning. Love. Love is the reason for the season. Love. Now, our Christmas celebrations rightly center on the what of Christmas. What happened? Well, Jesus left heaven to be born as one of us, to live the life that we should have lived, to die an atoning death for our sins, to be resurrected, conquering sin and, and death for all of us. That's what happened and we should, we should not only celebrate that with all of our might, we should fall down on our knees each and every year and worship God for it. But here is the why of Christmas. If you're looking for the actual reason for the season, here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. This verse is the center of our Advent preparation this year. It's the gospel in one sentence. The central reality of scripture. The central reality of our faith as well. And so this morning, as we consider this passage, I'd like to focus on this part of it. God so loved the world. And let me, let me begin this lesson with something that you might not expect. If we want to understand the depth of God's love, God so loved. If we want to understand the depth of his love, we have to start with the reality that he so loved the world. So what does it mean that God so loved the world? And are, are, are we talking about the earth? The, this beautiful ball of rock and water, geology and ecosystems spinning in its orbit around the sun and around itself on a tilted axis? The world? Or are we talking about all the living things on our planet, plant and animal? Are all the diverse peoples of all races, all ethnicities, in all places, in all times? Is that what it means that God so loved the world? Well, certainly, that's part of it. That's part of it. But if we're going to understand what it means that God so loves the world, 
We have to go beyond thinking of the world simply in terms of a planet and all of its people. When we see the, the phrase, the world, in our Bibles, it means something very unique. It means something uh, unique to the Bible itself. So let's unpack that little phrase and let's consider the passage that Jared read for us just a few minutes ago, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and on. And let's look first at verses 1 and 2. As for you, Paul writes, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, here is our clue to the Bible's unique meaning for this little phrase, the world. It is Bible code for the realm of human life that is controlled by God's enemy, Satan, the world. So in this passage, Paul uses the Greek word cosmos, and we translate that word into English as the world. Now, we generally take the world to mean, you know, a planet full of people. You know, kind of like he's got the whole world in his hands. But cosmos was most often used by Jesus and by the apostles in the sense of a kingdom, a sphere of authority, and specifically as a code word for the kingdom ruled by God's enemy, Satan, whose ways are called the ways of the world. Cosmos. It's the same word that John used in John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos, the world. So do you catch the implications of what John is saying here? For God so loved the world? I mean, God so loved even the kingdom of his enemy, the realm in which Satan's every thought, every action, every energy is directed toward destroying God's people or God's influence, toward thwarting God's purposes, toward distorting God's character, to turning, to turning God's own creation against him, the world, this realm in which human beings are engaged in an active mutiny against their creator. God so loved the world. So the world is the realm of Satan. And this realm of Satan to which every pain, every injustice, every act of evil, treachery, greed, barbarism, villainy, it can all be traced to Satan's rule over people, the world. All of man's humanity to man, all wars, behind, it's behind all the racial, ethnic, political, cultural clashes, Satan's kingdom, the world, for God so loved the world. 
Now, I don't want, I don't want to take your, the bloom off of your holiday cheer this morning, but we can't really understand Christmas unless we imagine, just for a moment, unless we imagine what it means that God loves the world. I mean, the, the world, this place of active rebellion against him, it's not a pretty place. I mean, imagine all that God has seen throughout the ages. All of the brutalities, the treacheries, the betrayals, the injustices, the, 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 the roughshod quest for power, acts of pride, acts of lust, the corruption of wealth, the squalor of poverty, the hardness of hearts. I mean, century after century after century, among nations, among rulers, among individuals, things done in public, things done and said in private, the world. I mean, can you imagine? God has seen all of it. A never-ending parade of self-interest, violence, oppression, abuse, perversion. And even so, he loves the world. He so loved the world, we're told, that he gave his one and only son in order to bring the devastation caused by our sin to an end. Now, all we have to do is allow our imaginations to go there for one moment. All that God has seen and heard over the history of mankind's mutiny against him as he sees every secret deed, thought, and desire. And suddenly we know he could not be blamed for, for wiping his hands of us in horror or disgust. We know that, that he couldn't be blamed either for just walking away and leaving us to our own destruction or for destroying the world in an act of righteous judgment. But he hasn't. Why? Love. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then John's next sentence in chapter 3 gives us a deeper insight into the love, uh, uh, into God's love in the face of this kind of rebellion. John 3.17 For God did not send his son into the world, the cosmos, to condemn the world, the cosmos, but to save the world, the cosmos, through him. Now again, by rights, God could have dealt with this rebellion another way. Apart from his love and his mercy, he could have been justified in leaving us all to suffer the consequences our sin deserve. But he did not. It's not his intent to condemn this rebellious, oppositional, deceived heartache of a realm called the world. That's not his intent. His intent is to save us eternally 
For God so loved the world. <laughs> now, what, what manner of love is this that so loves even a kingdom in revolt that he would give so sacrificially to provide a way out for us? Now, I, <laughs> I get this. No, no one wants their holiday cheer interrupted by having to engage with the gravity of what it means that God so loved the world in spite of the mutiny led by his enemy, Satan. But when we do, when we do engage with it, even just for a moment, it brings a depth to our worship and our celebration of Christ's birth that changes all that has been superficial and, and contrived about Christmas. For God so loved the world. Now, if he can do that, why, of course, he can love you and me, us. God loves us, all of us, you and me. And we all know this is true, right? We've sung the song since we were children. We've taught it to our own children. Jesus loves me, this I know. We know this is true. <laughs> However, in my pastoral experience, the love of God is the hardest thing for human beings to actually embrace. That God loves me. <laughs> now, we believe he loves us. Us. But it's very hard, is it not? believe that he loves me. God loves me. Now we know this in our heads, but not in our hearts. Some people have called this the longest journey, getting the idea that God loves me to travel the 16 inches from our heads down to our hearts. And now if you and I are going to make this journey to believe that God actually loves me. Well, we have to forget what we think we already know about love. With all of its conditions and its varying degrees. And we have to allow the Bible to retrain our understanding of God's love. It's not conditioned. It never changes. God so loves and his love is like this. First, God is love. God is love. It's not something he does sometimes, not others. God is love. It is his nature, his being. So again, his love never waxes and wanes. It never changes. It's not conditioned, not on anything. His love is not attached to anything we do or do not do. He loves because of who he is, not because of who we are. He loved us before we were born, before we had obeyed him or disobeyed him. He loves us. He loved us before we accepted him. He loves us when we reject him. 
He loves those who don't believe as intensely as he loves those who do. James Birchall puts it this way. He says, our father loves the loveless, the unloving, the unlovable. He does not detect what is congenial, appealing, attractive, and then respond to that. No, he does not respond at all. Our father initiates love. He is love without cause. God so loves you, each of you, and us, all of us. Now, this assertion is not based on whether we feel or experience his love. I mean, it's just there. God's love for us is an objective biblical fact. And if we ever want to actually experience and feel God's love, we have to begin with this biblical fact. God loves me. Secondly, God's love, unlike ours, which is often just a concept, God's love is active. It's not simply an emotion, as we so often define love. God's love is defined by action. God so loved the world that he gave. And moreover, God's love is compelled always by its nature. It's compelled to do what true love requires, no matter what. His love is not about what feels like love to us. His love is always expressed in what is right for us no matter how it feels. So this is better understood as we look at point number three. God's love is centered on the very best interests of those he loves, which is everyone. Only the very best interests. Now, it did not feel like love at the time when my parents were so angry at something I had done that they punished me or grounded me or, or forbid me to be with a friend who did not have my best interests at heart. <laughs> it did not feel like love, but it was. And, and this is where what the Bible calls God's wrath comes in. His wrath is a function of his love. His wrath burns toward anything and everything that puts the best interest of his creatures in jeopardy, which includes our own particular versions of sin. Again, the passage that, that um, Jared read for us earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, had these incredible words. All of us lived at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now God's wrath at our sin, it's a function of his love for us because sin destroys us. But God's wrath is not all there is to God's love. His love includes his grace. 
But, Ephesians goes on, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God so loved. For God's love, we discover, is not only active, it is sacrificial. It, it cost God. But it takes the cost, the price of love, on itself. God the Father, out of love, gave his one and only Son. God the Son, out of love, joyfully accepted the assignment. Now again, if we want to experience God's love as a reality in our life, it begins with this. God has already loved us more than we can imagine. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then fifth, God's love is personal. He so loved the world, he so loves you. You God knows you. God knows you down to the marrow of your bones. And still, he loves you. He knows all of the dark places, the rooms in our heart that we don't even want to go into for fear of what we'll find there. He's already there. And he loves you nonetheless. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever contemplated doing. And still, he loves you. He knows every word that has slipped off of our tongues, sometimes in anger, sometimes carelessly, including all of the hurtless, hurtful ones, and still, he loves you. He knows every deed you've ever done when you imagined no one was looking, every thought you've indulged in in the privacy of your heart, And still, he loves you. No person, no person, not your mother or father, not your brother or sister, not your husband or your wife, not your son or your daughter, not your boyfriend or girlfriend, not even your best friend, no person has ever loved you like God loves you. He loves you passionately. Tenderly, authentically, steadfastly, abidingly. Whatever you say or do, whatever you leave undone, whatever you believe or don't believe, God knows you to the core and still he loves you. God so loves you that he would have given his one and only son to provide a way to keep you and you alone from perishing in your sins. The late Brennan Manning put this better than I ever could hope to. He said, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. 
Do you believe it? God loves you beyond worthiness or unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. He loves you. He loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain. He loves you without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point. Do you believe it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe it? Now hearing that central Christmas message is one thing. Receiving the gift of it is another. It is as if every Christian Christmas morning we leave the biggest, most beautifully wrapped gift under the tree, unwrapped, un- unreceived. So don't do that this year. Receive the best gift of all. Open it, rip off the paper, and embrace the best gift you have ever received the fact. That God loves you. His gift of salvation and eternal life. The gift of being in his family as his adopted child. That's for you. So this year, open it. Open it. God so loves you. So this, my friends, is the reason for the season, the true meaning of Christmas. God loves you. Amen? Amen.